0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, and we will continue our series in Galatians. This morning we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10, verses 6 through 10. I'll actually uh, begin reading for us in verse 1. Of course, we looked at verses 1 through 5 last week, and uh, I'll read through to verse 10, and then we'll focus our attention on verses 6 through 10. Beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. Well, we all know something of controversy. It starts when we're very young and with a sense of justice, we proclaim, That's mine. I had it first. And controversy ensues. And then inevitably, controversy follows us through life. So a teacher gives us a bad grade in school and we protest, That's so unfair. Or someone cuts us off in traffic, and the person who cuts us off in traffic, we give them a dirty look. Or our spouse hurts our feelings, and so we yell at them. All of these are unpleasant examples of controversy, but examples of controversy that all of us at some time in our lives will probably experience. We also have to acknowledge, though, that there is a sense in which we enjoy controversy, At least some controversy. It is the basis for most reality TV shows. It is the basis of much of the news that we watch. And no doubt there are a lot of people who will watch or even pay to go to a hockey game for one reason and one reason alone, right? Why? To see a fight. And so there's a part of us that we have to admit that we enjoy some controversy. Well, it's no secret that the tr- Christian church has known its fair share of controversy. Some of it justified, much of it not. And in our text this morning, we enter into the mix of a full-blown controversy. And from Paul's example here, we learn a number of important lessons regarding Christian controversy. One lesson that we learn is that there are some things that are worth fighting for, and there are many things that are not worth fighting for. You see, it seems even in our own day that many theologically liberal churches don't think that there is anything worth fighting for, and there are some theologically conservative churches that fight all the time. Every hill is a hill to die on. Everything is a battle to the death. It's instructive for us to see here in this letter that Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. It's instructive for us to consider what it is that Paul is fighting for. And here in our text we see that Paul is fighting. He is contending over the gospel. In fact, that word gospel is mentioned five times in our text. I believe that Paul would say to theologically liberal churches, there are some things worth fighting for. There are some things where you need to draw a line in the sand. And on the other hand, I think Paul would say to some conservative or fundamentalist churches, you need to put down your swords. You're killing each other. I'm talking here about the gospel. I'm not talking about, for example, what translation of the Bible you're reading out of, whether it's the King James Version or the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from this morning. You see, the inability of churches to distinguish between what is essential, what's important, and what is not can be crippling to a church. So, for some conservative fundamentalist churches, sometimes uh, the the worst word that you could ever use, the worst thing you could ever do is compromise. Compromise. You should never, ever compromise. And yet, what we see in the Scriptures is that Paul was actually willing to compromise on any number of things. In First Corinthians chapter 9… Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And yet, it is also clear that there were many times where Paul was not willing to compromise. And what we see in our text this morning is Paul was not willing to compromise when it came to the gospel. In our text this morning, we see the importance of contending for the gospel. And we see that as Paul contends for the gospel, he urges the Galatian Christians to return to God by rejecting all false gospels and by reasserting their commitment to the God of grace. I want to state that again because it's really the main point in our text. As we see Paul contending for the gospel in this text we see that he urges the Galatian Christians to return to God by rejecting all false gospels and by reasserting their commitment to the God of grace. The first thing I want us to see in our text this morning, there will be three points, and the first point is this. The Galatians were deserting God. The Galatians were deserting God. Look there in verse 6, we read these words. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, some of you may know this that normally when Paul opens a letter, he would open with a greeting, and we looked at the greeting last week, and then he would follow that greeting by addressing his readers with a word of encouragement, a word of thanks, a word of commendation, but not in Galatians. The situation here is so dire that Paul immediately gets to the point. After the greeting, he goes straight to the issue at hand. He skips all the thanksgiving, all the pleasantries, any commendation or encouragement, and gets right to the point. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, I want you to notice here, though, in verse 6, what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, initially here in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel. Which is true. In fact, he even goes on to say later on in the verse that they are turning to a different gospel. But just notice that that's not exactly what Paul says to begin with here. Rather, where Paul starts is by saying... I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. In other words, Paul makes this situation, this controversy here that is taking place in the Galatian churches, he makes it deeply personal. Because what we will see here in our text is that Paul wants them and he wants us to understand that faith and unbelief are not merely cognitive. They're not merely mental. It's not merely propositions. Rather, faith and unbelief are deeply and profoundly personal. And so Paul begins here by reminding his readers who God is. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of God of Christ. In other words, Paul is reminding them of their conversion. He's reminding them of the One who saved them. Paul had visited this region, the region of Galatia, on his first missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter 13 and in Acts chapter 14. And as Paul visited this region, his missionary efforts there were remarkably successful. There were conversions, there were miracles, churches were planted, and these men and women that he is writing to here, they had been changed and transformed by the power of God's grace as Paul preached the gospel to them. And Paul says now, as he's writing them years later, "'I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him "'who called you in the grace of Christ.'" In other words, when Paul went and preached the gospel to them in Galatia, they didn't just encounter a new set of interesting truths or ideas and assent to them. Paul is saying something more profound happened in those moments. Through the preaching of the gospel, they encountered the living God. And he saved them by his grace, and he changed them, and he transformed them. I believe that Paul would characterize what happened in Galatia the same way he characterized what happened in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is another city that Paul went to in his missionary journeys, and he preached the gospel there, and people were saved, and they were converted. And when Paul wrote the church in Thessalonica later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he reflected back on what had happened and their conversion experience. And these are the words He writes. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction so that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you see what Paul is saying there? In Thessalonica, when we came and preached the gospel to you, you didn't just encounter ideas. You didn't just encounter a new new way of thinking. You encountered the living God. The Word came to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the God of grace saved you and transformed you so that you turned from idols to serve the one true and living God. This faith that you have is deeply personal, not merely propositional. Some of you here this morning may be struggling with your faith in God, in the Bible, in the gospel. Maybe you're wrestling with doubt and with unbelief. Understand this, and I I hope this will help you in your struggles with doubt and with faith and with unbelief. Doubt and faith are not just about ideas and philosophies and propositions. Doubt and faith are about a person. It's about God. And if you profess to be a believer, let me ask you this, and this this is what Paul is doing here, I believe, with the Galatian churches. Do you remember, do you remember when God visited you with His grace? Do you remember the first time that He rescued you and what He rescued you from? And could you imagine this morning where you might be had He not intervened in your life and saved you by His grace? I remember when I was a young man and I remember how the Lord arrested my heart, how He captured my mind, how He reset the course of my life. And as I think about it now and I reflect about on how the Lord changed my life, I can't imagine where I would be today if He had not intervened in my life. I had friends at that very same time in my life who chose a different path to their great peril. And my friends, if we are in Christ, what Paul is saying here is that we need to be reminded afresh sometimes of when God saved us, when He originally called us to Himself and He transformed us and He changed us. I imagine many of us love that great hymn, Amazing Grace, by John Newton. And the second verse of that hymn, John Newton writes, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And sometimes, my friends, we need to be reminded, we need to go back and remember the preciousness of God's grace, the hour, the moment that we first believed. Where would we be without the God of grace? Where would we be without God who calls and redeems and saves through the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ? Os Guinness, who wrote a book on doubt that's really helpful, entitled God in the Dark. He's reflecting on a verse from Romans chapter 1, verse 21. And in that verse, Paul writes, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And Os Guinness writes these words reflecting on that verse, quote, Paul's words are a reminder that rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. The bankruptcy of our position without God is forgotten. The sting of our former dilemma fades. A sense of God's conviction wears off, and our acknowledgement of God's grace becomes routine and matter-of-fact." End of quote. And do you see what Paul is trying to elicit within his readers, what he's trying to awaken again and afresh with it, in a fresh way within their minds? He's trying to remind them afresh and anew of God's redeeming grace and love and salvation in their lives. He says, "Don't you remember how God called you, how He saved you, how He redeemed you, how He transformed you? Are you ready to forsake him?" Because doubt is not all cognitive. Doubt is not all about ideas and philosophies and propositions. It's about about a person. And if you forsake the gospel, you forsake him. If you lose the gospel, you lose God. If you desert the gospel, you desert the one who is God himself and saves by his grace and his mercy. And given who he is, Given who Christ is, and how He has changed you, and how He's redeemed you, and how He's transformed you, are you ready to reject and disbelieve His Word and desert Him? The Galatians were deserting God. And now we see, right from the get-go in this letter, how dire the situation really was. Secondly, this is our second point. The Galatians must reject all false gospels. The Galatians must reject all false gospels. Look there in verse 7. I'll begin reading for us in verse 6, but, but our point's going to come primarily from verses 7 through 9, okay? So, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, verse 7. Now, as I mentioned, the word gospel is used five times in just these few verses. And what is the gospel? What is it that Paul's fighting for, that he's contending for? Well, we can deduce from verse 6 that the gospel is the gospel of the grace of Christ. And Paul is insistent here that there is no other gospel. Now, we will begin to unpack more and more as we walk through this letter what this gospel is, but let me just share with you briefly this morning that there's an outline that I have found to be very helpful over the years in terms of articulating the Christian gospel. The outline has four points, and you, you can use this as you talk to people about the Lord and about what the gospel is. The four points are simple, God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ's response. So we start with God. God created us. He loves us. He desires to have a relationship with us. Man, but we have rebelled against Him. We've rejected Him and gone our own way. And therefore, we are worthy of His just condemnation. Christ, but God loves us. And so He sent His Son who became a man and lived on this earth He lived a perfect life in obedience to God and to his law. And then he died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. And he was raised from the dead so that we might be saved, so that we might experience salvation and redemption. And then the fourth point response. How do we respond to this good news that God loves us and has sent his Son to redeem us and save us? The Bible uses two words over and over again to describe how we are to respond to this good news. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins. It's a disposition, an attitude of the heart that says, no longer will I be Lord of my life, but I submit my life to Christ and He will be Lord. And believe. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that He was raised from the dead, and you will be saved. You will be forgiven of your sins, and God will grant you eternal life. This is the Christian gospel. This is the good news that Paul is talking about here as he writes to the churches in Galatia. But he says that there are some, you see there in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7, there are some who desire to trouble you, to disturb you, unsettle you, confuse you. And how are they trying to trouble, or how are they troubling the churches in Galatia? They want to distort, or that could be translated, they want to change, pervert, turn into something else, the gospel of Christ. And what these, what these false teachers in Galatia were doing was they were wanting to turn the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, upside down. And so what they were essentially teaching is that you do good things in order to be accepted before God. God. Instead of teaching rightly what the gospel proclaims is that we are accepted before God through faith in Jesus Christ, by His grace, and therefore we do good things. And just changing that order flips the gospel upside down. Are we saved by grace, or are we saved by the good things that we do? And so the teaching of these false teachers, we we could imagine that to these young Christians in Galatia, it may have seemed very plausible, it may have seemed very reasonable may have seemed very convincing. They may have said something to the Galatian churches like this. Yes, we believe Paul's gospel just like you do. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But listen, Gentile Christians. We Jews have been following God far longer than you have. In fact, for thousands of years we've been following Him. And if you really want to know God then you must follow the Jewish laws and customs, and in particular, you must be circumcised according to the law of Moses, and then you will be saved. You see, false teachers are deceptive, and that's one of the things we need to know about false teachers. They are deceptive. Now, admittedly, some of them are not as good at it as others. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Anton LaVey he is the uh, author of the Satanic Bible, and I believe the founder of the Satanic church. If, he, he's a scary-looking dude, and if you were to see him, you should know right away, I need to go in the other direction. He's not very good at hiding his ill intent, but people are still deceived by him. But, but most false teachers don't come into a church wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm a heretic. I want to distort the gospel and divide your church, right? Right? Most false teachers don't do that. They are deceptive. Think about the Mormons. They're such nice people. They dress nice. They wear, you know, white shirts and a tie. They ride bikes. It's good for the environment. They're fit, healthy. They believe in family values. They have great commercials. I would rather watch a lot of their commercials than much of the junk that comes on Christian TV. And listen, my friends, tragically, they are heretics. They believe a false gospel. They don't even believe in the God of Christianity. They believe that God was once a man. And that then through a series of events, He evolved into being God. God. And that we can become like God ourselves one day. We can become a God like He is. False teachers often, most often, are deceptive. But that doesn't mean, although they may be appealing or compelling, it doesn't mean that what they teach is true. J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century... He was reflecting on false teaching in his own day. And he wrote eight statements regarding the environment in his own day in which false teaching was taking a foothold and growing. Listen to these eight statements that he makes. I'm going to read them to you quickly. One, there is an undeniable zeal in some of the teachers of error. Their earnestness makes many think that they must be right. Number two, There is a great appearance of learning and theological knowledge. Many fancy that such clever and intellectual men must surely be safe guides. Number three, there is a general tendency to free thought and free inquiry in these latter days. Many like to prove their independence of judgment by believing novelties. Number four, there is a widespread desire to appear charitable and liberal-minded. Many seem half ashamed of saying that anybody can be in the wrong. Number five, there is a quantity of half-truth taught by the modern false teachers. They are incessantly using scriptural terms and phrases in unscriptural ways. Number six, there is a morbid craving in the public mind for a more sensuous, ceremonial, sensational, showy worship. Men are impatient of inward, invisible heart work. Number seven, there is a silly readiness in every direction to believe everybody who talks cleverly, lovingly, and earnestly, and a determination to forget that Satan often masquerades himself as an angel of light. Number eight, there is a widespread gullibility among professing Christians. Every heretic who tells his story plausibly is sure to be believed, and everybody who doubts him is called a persecutor and a narrow-minded man. Now, he wrote that, I don't know, 150 years ago maybe? Don't those same observations ring true as we think about the modern church today and as we kind of survey the religious, spiritual context in which we live? And notice, my friends, that, that what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia here is that we have a responsibility to discern what is true and embrace it and to reject what is false. One of the things that's interesting in these opening verses here is that Paul is not primarily addressing the elders of the church in Galatia or the deacons in the church of Galatia, or the leaders in the church in Galatia. He writes over and over again in these verses. He, he addresses the church as you. It's, it's you plural. That's the pronoun he's using. Us, good, us southerners would say y'all, right? And we see it over and over again in these verses. I am astonished that y'all are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. There are some who are wanting to trouble y'all and distort the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to y'all a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let them be accursed. As we've said before, now I say it again. If anyone's preaching to y'all a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Do you see what Paul is saying? That we as the church, the body of Christ, we have the responsibility to discern what is true, to avoid false teachers, to reject false doctrine. And again, this raises the question of authority. We saw this last week and we talked about it. If we have this responsibility to discern what is true, to avoid false teaching, to reject false doctrine, how do we know who to listen to? Who should we believe? Who has authority to determine what is ultimate truth? Well, notice in these verses that Paul has a number of things to say about those who may claim to be authoritative sources of truth. Notice what he says in verse 8. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. So, so Paul imagines a scenario here where there might be an angel from heaven who would claim to be an ultimate source of authority as it regards absolute truth. Now, now can you imagine this? Imagine that in one of our services here at Crawford Avenue, one Sunday morning, an angel appeared. Okay? And we all saw it. It wasn't a private thing. It was a public thing. We all saw it. There was no denying it. An angel appeared. And he spoke with a booming voice. that made us kind of tremble on the inside. And he says, I know... What you've heard from Paul, and I know what you've read in the Bible about the gospel, and it's true, you must believe in Jesus. But if you are to be saved, not only must you believe in Jesus, but you must do these ten things on this list that I'm imparting to you now. How would Paul respond to that? Paul says, anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be eternally judged, condemned, damned forever. That's Paul's response. And some of you might say, well, how is that relevant today? I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone that's claiming to have seen an angel and trying to you know, contradict the Scriptures based on a vision of an angel. Do you know that Islam, the foundation of, of the religion of Islam is that an angel revealed himself to Muhammad and the basis of the revelation was that salvation does not come through the prophet Jesus but rather comes through the five pillars of Islam by observing them and doing them. And many other cults make similar claims and Paul says let them be accursed, there is only one gospel. But Paul even goes further than that. Notice there in verse 8 he's addressed the angel. If there were an angel who claimed to be the source of ultimate authority over and above what has already been revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ let him be accursed. But notice what else he says in verse 8. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, this is very interesting because if you remember last week, Paul opens this letter in verse 1 by saying he's an apostle. And we talked about apostolic authority. And so you might say, well, didn't Paul have apostolic authority? And now he's saying, but even if we... Say something, proclaim another gospel, we should be accursed. You see, there's a vital distinction that needs to be made here, and this is very important. God did grant the apostles authority, unique authority, to speak to the church, to record holy scripture. But the authority that God granted to the apostles was an authority to speak on behalf of Christ the word of Christ the word of Christ that he spoke to the apostles and the word of Christ that was affirmed by the rest of the apostles. They did not have the authority to preach their own words or their own gospel. As F.F. Bruce says it, quote, "...the gospel preached by Paul is not the true gospel because it is Paul who preaches it. It is the true gospel because the risen Christ gave it to Paul to preach." And that's an important distinction. Paul is acknowledging here, yes, I have apostolic authority, and and so you need to listen to what I'm saying, but I also want you to understand this. Foundational absolute authority does not finally lie in me or in the apostles, but in the risen Christ. And we as apostles only have authority in as much as we speak the word of Christ that he has given to us. And we are not free to alter it or to change it. So, Paul says, if an angel contradicts the word of the risen Christ, let him be accursed. Even if an apostle were to contradict the word of the risen Christ, let him be accursed. And then, notice this, he generalizes it more. He restates it and then generalizes it in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, so he's going to repeat it, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So not just an angel, not just an errant apostle, but anyone. And I think it is worth saying, given our modern day and our modern culture, that as Paul says anyone here, that includes you and it includes me. In other words, contrary to what our modern culture and society tells us today, we are not the standard for absolute, final, ultimate truth. Have you ever asked someone, well, what do you believe? And you know, you're not talking about like, who's going to win the national championship this year, you know? You're talking about ultimate things, like who God is, how we can be saved, heaven, hell. And someone will say, well, what I believe is, and then, you know, they put it out there. Has maybe nothing to do with the Bible or bits or pieces of the Bible and bits and pieces of this and then kind of what they have come up with and so forth. And then you follow that up with, asking them the question, well, why do you believe that? And the answer, well, I've just thought about it, and that's what I believe. I just know it to be true. I just believe it. Now, like, our heads should spin at that point. I mean, the hubris, (laughs) the arrogance, to think that, like, we have... The holy scriptures that have been given to us, the most read book in the history of the world. There are many other religious texts. There have been billions of people who have lived throughout history, and now I have arrived on human history, in human history, and in this moment and at this time, I have corrected and I have, um, I have solved all the mysteries of the universe. Here they are. You're welcome. When you think about it, it is that crazy. What Paul is saying here is, no, we are not the final determiners as it relates to absolute truth. The one who can speak authoritatively as it relates to absolute truth is the risen Christ, whose life and words have changed the world. And who confirmed who he was and confirmed all that he said by his resurrection from the dead. And anyone who contradicts, who seeks to undermine, who rejects his word, his gospel, let him be accursed. So, the Galatians were deserting God. Secondly, the Galatians must reject all false gospels. Third, the Galatians must choose between God and man. The Galatians must choose between God and man. Look there in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. So, notice how this passage develops. So, in verse 6, he says that the Galatian church is deserting God. And then in verse 7, he says that they are being troubled by some. And now in verse 10, he says now that they have a decision to make. They can either please God, who has saved them by His grace, or they can seek to please men who are troubling them with False doctrine, and Paul says he knows his choice. He has chosen to please God rather than man, and as a result, he is a servant of Christ. So Paul here again makes it very personal, and we need to understand, my friends, that in our Christian lives, we have to determine that our ultimate goal in life—it's not that we are seeking to displease men; it's not that our goal is to displease men. It's not that our goal is to be rude or inconsiderate or harsh. In fact, when we seek to please Christ, what does Christ tell us? Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, take into consideration their thoughts, their background, their burdens, their joys, and love them as you would want to be loved. We should be considerate of others and gracious and kind. But our ultimate goal and ambition is to please Christ, even if that runs cross with the desires and ambitions and thoughts of others. And we need to be careful on this point, because a lot of bad theology, a lot of false doctrine springs up out of the church's desire to simply want to be loved and affirmed and acknowledged by others and by our culture. If we are to be faithful to Christ, we must understand that the gospel itself naturally sets us in opposition in at odds with the modern world and our modern culture. So for example, we talk about salvation. But many in our own day don't believe they need to be saved and even to suggest such a thing is offensive. We maintain that we are all sinners. But many in our day believe that they are inherently good and morally upright people and deserve to go to heaven. We declare that God will one day judge the world, but many are not concerned with God's judgment, but rather they believe they have the right to judge God and determine whether or not they will have any use uh, for Him in the end. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, comments on this point, and he writes these words. Listen to this. He says, quote, We seek not the favor of men by our doctrine, for we teach that all men are wicked by nature and the children of wrath. We condemn man's free will, his strength, wisdom, and righteousness, and all religion of man's own devising, and to be short, that there is nothing in us to deserve grace and the forgiveness of sins." Actually, what we proclaim is so much better, and this is what Luther says, but we preach that we obtain this grace by the free mercy of God only for Christ's sake. This is not to preach for the favor of men and of the world, for the world cannot abide nothing less than to hear His wisdom, righteousness, religion, and power commended. For if we speak against men or anything that pertains to their glory, it cannot be but that cruel hatred, persecutions, excommunications, murders, and condemnations must follow. So Paul says here, I seek not to please men, that they may praise my doctrine and report me an excellent teacher, but I desire only that my doctrine may please God, end of quote. And my friends, as we conclude, this is in fact what Paul desires for the church in Galatia, He says you have this this choice before you. Will you align with the God who has saved you by his grace and mercy in Christ? Or will you finally seek to please men? At the end of the day, who will you trust? At the end of the day, where will we place our hope for our eternal souls? Who will we finally seek to please? God or the latest trends and ideas of our culture? The resurrected Christ? and His authoritative Word, or mortal man. Let's pray and ask God that He would give us grace to be faithful to His Word and to His Gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word and so grateful for the Gospel. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to You and to Your Word. Lord, help us to understand that um, to be faithful to Your Word is, in fact, to be faithful to You. And Lord, we are so grateful for the way that, uh, for so many of us, that you have changed us, that you have transformed us by your grace, that you have rescued us and redeemed us. And uh, Lord, help us to be full of gratitude, to be full of thankfulness. Lord, we pray that there would be a sense even within our own hearts that we couldn't imagine abandoning you and abandoning what you have done for us. Father, I do pray for those who are here this morning that might be wrestling with doubt and with unbelief. Lord, I pray that through Your Word that You would give them a settled conviction and confidence in the gospel. I pray, Father, that You would help us to place our hope and final confidence and faith in the Word of the resurrected Christ. And Father, we thank You that we have that Word, that You have granted us that Word, preserved that Word for us in Holy Scripture. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.